you have a Bible with you, I invite you to open it to the uh, book of Romans, chapter 3, where this morning we have the opportunity to consider what uh, New Testament scholar Leon Morris called the most important words ever written. Not the most important verses in the Bible, but the most important words ever to be penned anywhere uh, is the message, it's the turning point of God revealing to us through the Apostle Paul of the hope of all of humanity that comes to us in the person of Jesus. This morning our focus will be on verses 21 through 31, or finishing the the third chapter, Uh, but for the sake of the context, I'll begin my reading in verse 20. Once I find my notes. People of God, hear the word of God. By works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law, the word of our God. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Holy God, we do thank you that you have gathered us a day that we not only rest from labors, but are reminded to be able to be renewed in your grace as we rest in the accomplished work of Jesus Christ. We now come to your word and desire to worship you in this way. And so we pray that you, by the work of your spirit, might open our minds to understand and hearts to receive this glorious truth that you have, received, you have revealed through your servant Paul. May this set the captive free. May it bring joy to the brokenhearted. May it form us in every way, mind, body, and spirit, that we may live our lives in the way that you have intended, and that we may live as an act of worship to you. 
Lord, we pray that you would be at work through this word to the glory of your grace and for the good of those of us who are gathered. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Apollo 13 launched on April 11th, 1970. It was an event that is probably etched into the memory of all of us who are old enough to remember and into the memories of many who have just seen the movie from Tom, starring Tom Hanks. It was the first major exploration after the amazing moonwalk months before in July of 1969 as Neil Armstrong took those first steps. It was a lot of expectation, a lot of hope. They were returning to the moon to build upon what had been already accomplished. And yet Apollo 13 became known later as a successful failure. It was a failure in the sense that mechanical errors made them, force them to abandon the mission that they had hoped to engage in uh, by walking on the moon and collecting more materials. But it was successful because the collective genius of the engineers at NASA was able to bring all of the astronauts safely back to Earth. Perhaps most memorable from Apollo 13 are the words of the capsule pilot, Jack Weigert. Houston, we have a problem here. For the past several weeks, we've been listening to the Apostle Paul declare that same thing. We have a problem here. He's been going into great detail explaining that we have a plight from which we cannot rescue ourselves. Someone else must figure this out for us. It is a plight that not only has immediate dangers for us, but it has eternal consequences as well. Paul here summarizes that problem in verse 23 when he simply says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All is the totality. There's not one person who's living and breathing who has, is not afflicted with this same condition of sin. But here Paul uses the word sin in another distinctive way, and so it's not just speaking of our condition, but all have sinned. And so he is saying that every one of us has either acted or failed to act in some way that is measuring up to the holiness, to the perfection, to the glory of our God. And consequently, we have warranted and plunged ourselves into alienation from God. We've offended his righteousness. We have warranted God's wrath to be brought upon us. And we have subjected ourselves to God's wrath being expressed by leaving us subject to the consequences of our own desires and of our own decisions. This is what the scripture teaches and what Paul has been telling us for two chapters now. Now, I suspect if we were honest, most of us would have to admit that we really don't understand this idea of God's wrath, even if we embrace it as biblical truth. Most of us have no difficulty embracing it when it is promised to be applied to the monsters of history whether it is Nero persecuting the early church or Hitler persecuting Jews and others who disagreed or some serial killer. There's a sense of justice in every one of us that just seems to feel like that itself is appropriate. 
what we have difficulty understanding is the wrath of God as it is expressed toward our neighbor, as it's expressed toward normal people who do more good than bad in their lives. It's just difficult for us to comprehend. And that is often the argument that one might hear. With somebody being honest, whether it's a believer in honesty or somebody who is not a believer, hearing of what we've been reading, and that there's this wrath that God has toward humanity that might say something to the effect of, I, I, you know, I'm not perfect, but I, I don't think I, I deserve to have the wrath of God poured out. I do more good than bad. I mean, look at my calendar. Look at my track record, my schedule. I think it's important that we would consider that that argument, whether we embrace it in its full or whether we just subconsciously uh, accept it, is not an argument that would actually hold up in any human court. Your Honor, I know the policeman brought me here. I don't think I deserve to be here. I just had a bad day. It's just one day. In fact, it's not even one day. Yes, I went into the bank. The bills have been piling up. I went into the bank. Yes, I brought the gun. Yes, I robbed the bank. Yes, I shot the guard who tried to stop me from running. That, you know, that whole thing took 10 minutes. Out of a day of, you know, I even held the door open for a little old lady before I went in to shoot the guard. I have 10 minutes of a bad day and 23 hours and 50 minutes that overall was good. Take eight hours that I was sleeping, what could I do then? I mean, it's absolutely it's foolish. I was curious about the whole bank robbery imagery that came to mind, so I looked it up. Jesse James and his gang, they robbed 12 banks in five years. That's over 1,000 days that they might have been wonderful. I mean, more good than bad, right? Try presenting that to a judge. He's going to say, well, I don't know if we're going to convict you, but we're going to put you somewhere and lock you up um, because that is that's ludicrous. Nobody is going to accept that argument. And yet we who know that that would somehow be unjust think that a holy and just God will, should accept that argument. Paul says, and we know we have a sin problem. It is a, a breach of God's holiness. And there are consequences that come from that. But the problem of our sin is not only our problem. It is a problem for another. Because just as the crew of Apollo 13 saying, Houston, we have a problem, then became the problem of mission control because they had to figure a way to help the crew get through their problems. Our sin problem becomes a problem of sorts for God himself. Now, it's not the same kind of problem the mission control was wrestling with, trying to exhaust the extent of their knowledge on how they were going to handle it. But the problem our sin causes for God is more of a philosophical, theological question. What can God do now? What are the options for God? How can God be true to himself and yet continue having a relationship with those whom he has loved who have rejected and rebelled and despised him? What are the options? One option is that he can just destroy everything start over. The problem with that is he created us after his image. He loves us. 
And that wasn't something that he wanted to do. It would be consistent with his justice, but not consistent with his love. Or he could do, as many people just wonder, just kind of overlook it. I mean, what's the big deal? That was the alternative that the late atheist author Christopher Hitchens posed in an interview. He says this, If we are broken sinners, why can't God just forgive us? What's the big deal? Why in mercy and grace can't God just forgive? What's the need of the cross? And that is a question that it's not only Christopher Hitchens asking, but it's a question that's asked by philosophers, theologians, and average people who hear about the cross, whether proclaimed in church or someplace else. Why was the cross necessary? Why can't God just overlook and forgive? And just as he did not desire to just destroy and start over because it was a violation of his love, to just overlook sin would be a violation of his justice. And so either way, it would seem that he has to violate his own nature. And as we look at that problem from our perspective and uh, from uh, our limitation, it does seem to be a dilemma. How does God rescue those he loves without violating himself? How does he continue to be both holy and just? And here in the passage before us, Paul is revealing to us the remedy for our problem, the solution for our problem. We see it beginning to be introduced in verse 21. Now, not just in the future. It's not about something that we receive at the point of death or when Jesus returns, but now. Now there is a righteousness of God that has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And so there he's introducing the remedy, that, uh, the answer to the problem that we have plunged ourselves into that God has, um, that God has now assumed uh, because our problem created a, a problem for him, but it is not the way that we would have imagined. And then Paul goes on and he uses three theological words to explain to us how God resolved this problem. I know a portion of you are about ready to tune out already because the three words that we see that he's using here are are justification, redemption, propitiation, uh, words that I know you use in your conversations almost every single day. And I know that there's a tendency for people to say, look, I don't want to be a theologian. I just want to love Jesus and I want to be biblical. And if that's your argument, I would say to you, well, you have a problem here now, another problem, in addition to the problem that is being resolved and explained through this one. The other problem is, if you you just want to be biblical and not theological, these are biblical words. So, you know, these didn't get coined by uh, some theologian trying to come up with big words so that they would be impressive. These must be important. And so if it's difficult for you at times to, to embrace theological words. I want you to think about it in another way, in another common way that you've either seen or maybe even participated in. Because most of us don't use big words in everyday life, and we don't use Latin words, and we don't use big medical terms. But if you or somebody you love is diagnosed with a serious illness or ailment, it's amazing how quickly we begin to Google 
terms online and then learn whatever the possible remedies are for us. And, and if you've heard somebody who has a loved one who's been diagnosed with a cancer or diabetes or something else, and you hear a couple of people getting together, it, it sounds like even if it was just the day before, they, they knew nothing. It sounds like two people that are doctors at the Mayo Clinic because they know everything there is to say, and they know that these words are important and they describe something. And because the knowledge of the remedy and how this process works is the difference between life and death. Well, this is not only life and death, but this is eternity. And Paul's using these three words. And I'm going to briefly uh, try to uh, give you an idea of what they mean. And all of them have one common root that is vitally important that we do not miss. The first word that Paul uses is justification. We see it here in verse 24, following up with all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. And all, therefore, must be justified by grace, which comes as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has put forward as a propitiation. All right. We'll quiz you later if you can say that real fast. But justification is what is the heart here. Justification is a legal term. And it's a legal term that says, makes one guiltless. Sometimes the word pardon is used here as a synonym. And it's an understandable. It's not totally erroneous, but it is wholly inadequate. As one Bible commentator had pointed out, when somebody receives a pardon, what that means is that there is a a record, an acknowledgement of an offense that a governor or a president then is able to strike out the punishment. They are pardoned from any consequences of the offense that they had perpetrated. Justification means guiltless. Some of you growing up might have heard it, justification described as just as if I'd never sinned. It's a good way to remember it. Not accurate, but that's okay. But the only way for somebody to be guiltless is to be innocent in the first place or if somebody else takes on not only your punishment but the record itself. In which case, the punishment goes on them, the record goes on them, And then you are declared guiltless, regardless of the reality of your experience. Paul is saying, God, the answer here is for our problem, is that God is going to justify a people. It's a gift. A gift is something that is not earned. It's something that is given. And God is going to justify people. And then he uses the word redemption a little bit later, and redemption is more of an economic word. It means to purchase back. Some of you are old enough. I'm not acknowledging that I'm old enough to remember that as a kid that you know parents had little books of green little stamps that they would put in, and you would take them to the store, and you would trade them for some item. Uh, more contemporary is you go on your phone and you either print out or show a coupon, and that is counted as redeemed when it is used. And it's as good as money. It is a purchasing power. Throughout history, including the, the, the dark days of the old American South when slavery was prevalent, one of the things that abolitionists would do is they would gather together money and they would purchase slaves from slave owners for the purpose of setting them free. But when the abolitionists were to purchase them in order to set them free, they were considered, slaves were considered to be Redeemed. They were redeemed in order to be recognized as free. And that's the same context that Paul is using that word, that the Bible uses that word. 
We who are in debt and are slaves to sin cannot escape on our own because sin will come up and catch us. Somebody must pay that price for us to set us free. And then the third word that is used, perhaps the strangest of them all, the last one probably used, because redemption does get used in a certain way. Justification we use, not theologically, but whenever we want to justify ourselves for our foolishness. But I can honestly tell you, other than a handful of you in here, Ken Cunningham is visiting us again, he might bring up propitiation to me just for fun. But it doesn't come up very often. It also doesn't come up very often because people don't like it. What's interesting historically is after the King James Version came out, which uses propitiation, a number of the Bible translations in English did not use it for years and years and years. It was replaced with other words, atonement, which is not a bad, a bad substitute word, or expiation, which is not a good substitute word for it. And the reason they don't like it is because it goes back to this whole idea of God's wrath. Propitiation means God's wrath is satisfied. People just didn't want to think about a God who was angry at anything or uh, at his people or at sin. But to think of God in any way other than angry at sin would just be absolutely foolish because not only is it outside of his character, it doesn't even measure up to your character. If you were parents and you have a child who has succumbed to some kind of virus or illness, you are angry. You hate that disease. If you are a parent who has a child who has succumbed to drug abuse and is addicted to it, you not only hate those drugs that have now enslaved them, you probably hate whoever it is that gave them the drugs and enslaved them as well. That is a righteous hatred. And we would expect that to be the case. And God hates sin, not only because it's a violation of his holiness, and we can't minimize that, But God hates sin because of the devastation that is doing in the lives of the people who he created after his own image and who he loves. And so for God not to have wrath against sin would be unloving and unjust. And so God has paid the way through his own son who in our place took the fullness of punishment, took the fullness of God's wrath poured out upon him. And when Jesus died, it's not God was satisfied. God's wrath was satisfied. There was no more for those who trust, who believe in Christ Jesus is what Paul is saying to us here. And so Paul says that God is both just and the justifier. He's not only faithful to what is right, he's the one who made you right through the wisdom of his plan. And Paul says something early on here that we don't need to overlook. This is not a plan that God concocted later on. Because early on, we said there's now a righteousness of God that's been manifested Uh, apart from the law, although the law and the prophets witness to it. What that tells us is this plan is nothing new. It's been this way all along. We see it all throughout the Old Testament. In Genesis 3, right after our first parents had sinned, they were removed from the garden, God had promised that he would send one, one day who would crush the enemy and set his people free. In Genesis 15, it is a fascinating, fascinating picture. As God is entering into a covenant with his people, as he's called Abram, 
in the Old Testament times and in ancient times, when a covenant was cut, and it was called cut for a reason, because there must be blood, because if you violate a covenant, you're saying you deserve death. And so what happened in the ancient times is a covenant was cut, an animal that was appropriate sacrifice would be cut in quarters, and then they would be separated in parts, and then the person who was the weaker part of the covenant, who would be therefore the more likely one to break the covenant, was asked to walk through that. Sometimes both would walk through that sacrifice as a symbolic reminder that if I violate this covenant, that I am now walking through what has happened to this animal is what I deserve and what can happen to me. But in Genesis 15, God cuts the covenant with Abraham that is made with him on behalf of all of his heirs. And when that covenant was cut and Abram separated the parts of the animal, we're told that God himself walked through that. And what he's telling us is from the very beginning, he is establishing a covenant with his people. And this symbolizes and says this, and if you violate this covenant, I will die myself for you. Isaiah 53 is just ramped up. All of the scriptures, all throughout the scriptures, we see pointing to the propitiation, the justification, the redemption that is ours in Christ Jesus. This is God's solution. But who are those who are the beneficiaries of God's plan and solution? If you look into our text, you'll see a word repeated over and over six times. You see it repeated, and that word is faith. We are told that we are the beneficiaries. We receive the benefits of God's grace. That gift through faith. What is faith? How does it work? Is it a set of beliefs? Is it something that we do consistent with that set of beliefs? Well, that's not wrong, it is a subsequent to the foundational understanding of what faith is. Martin Luther offered a beautiful picture that is easily memorable. He said that faith is the ground drinking the rain that God has poured out. And so for you and me, what that means is it's not how much we learn how much we do. It's being like dirt, ground, and just letting God's love, his blessing, his grace soak in. The only thing faith does is receive, and it receives because it acknowledges its own need, its own emptiness. It doesn't even reach, the ground doesn't even reach out for the rain that God pours out. He just soaks it as he soaks his people his covenant people, in his love. And so we receive the benefits of God's grace simply by recognizing our need and resting in what God has poured out. Wrath upon Christ, love and grace and mercy upon you. Now, If it is by faith, there are a number of implications. Time doesn't allow me to go into too many of them, and the text doesn't elaborate on a whole lot of them, so that works out well. But I do want to touch very quickly on on three of them that we see here. 
if our justification, our reconciliation with God, our, our salvation is by grace through faith, by just letting the grace of God soak into us. Paul says, because it's by faith, there is no room for boasting. Because he starts with these rhetorical questions in verse 27, then what becomes a boasting? And what he means by that is, how am I supposed to show that I'm better than you are? Or how do you know you're better than I am? What am I supposed to measure myself by so that I know that I'm better than you or I need to catch up in some way? Admit it, we do it. Some of you don't think you've ever lost. Some of you don't think you've ever won. Most of us probably go about 500. And Paul says, no, 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 no. If it's by faith, which is simply sitting there and being soaked in grace, what are you going to boast in? There is no boasting except for in the glory and the grace of our God. The second implication, I think, is this, is because it's by faith, there is no discrimination. Paul asks this question, is God the God of the Jews only? No, he's the God of the, God of the Jews, he's the God of the Gentiles, he's the God of the whole world. And for Paul, Jew, Gentile is his way of saying there's two kinds of people in the world, and we could make that list any way that we wanted to. Is God the God of the left-handed only, or is he God of the right-handed? Is God the God of the bald, or only those who have hair? Is God the God of Republicans and not, or Democrats? Or Democrats and Republicans? The answer is God is the God of the nations. God is the God of all. And the whole point being here is that God, the gospel of God's grace knocks down the walls and the barriers by which we separate ourselves in this world. And says we all come on equal ground. We have no right to build them back up. So that means that we do need to be a people who recognize if it is by grace through faith, we don't divide on the basis of political affiliation and party. We try to hold one another accountable to being followers of Christ Jesus alone, however that expresses itself. Is God the God of those who grew up in Christian homes only or the God of all? Is God the God of those who send their kids to Christian school homeschool or even the public schools you can take it anywhere you want to there are walls that we seem to put up and we claim it's faithfulness and then we point to those things as if that work is what makes God pleased with us and God says no you lay there and you soak in the grace that he pours out if it's by faith there's no boasting and there is no discrimination we just build one another up in Christ and finally he says Because it is by faith, although it is by faith, it is not opposed to the law. Because people are saying, well, where do the rules fit in here? And he's saying at the end here, does it nullify the law? No, it actually validates the law. Because what it does by recognizing that we are right with God, justified by his grace, by simply soaking in his love, it puts the law in place to do what the law was intended to do, which is to break us of our own self-righteousness, which is why Paul leads into the saying, by keeping rules, no one will ever be right before God. But a righteousness that is apart from the law, that comes from God, has now been made known. The law points to it, and the way the law points to it is it by says the law is there, it shows us what we don't do. 
And then when we are broken, it drives us to the cross. We recognize our need. So when God pours out his grace, we are prepared to receive it. And then the law guides us in the way that life is supposed to be lived. We don't invert it and use the law, law wrongly. We use the law in a way that we recognize its beauty. I'm going to wrap up with this. I suspect that there are two kinds of people here this morning. Or maybe you're somewhere between these two. There are some of you here this morning who need to hear the message from verse 24. You are justified by his grace because of his love. Those of you who need to hear that are probably very aware, very well aware of your sin. You're very much in touch with your brokenness. Many people in that condition often just think, I don't know if God can save me or I don't know why God would want to save me. And even if you know that God has saved you and people like you, you're probably prone to be thinking, well, God may have saved me, but I I can't imagine that God really likes me. Paul makes very clear here, we are justified by his grace, which is a gift. And so no matter how you feel about yourself, you are standing the same as everyone else, and your hope is not in yourself, but that God loves those who feel unlovely, and he makes those of us who think that we should be loved recognize that it's not because of ourselves. You are loved. There are others of us, of us here this morning who need to hear or at least be reminded of the message expressed in verse 28. We hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law and there is no boasting. Now, that may be speaking to some who just think you're good because you do good things and I'm not denying you do good things. Most of you in here are better people than I am. But it's not being better than me, but being as good as God that matters. There's others of us who are here, and in a PCA church, we are probably more susceptible to this idea than most other traditions that think that it is the body of beliefs that we have that saves us. So as long as I know the right stuff, and then the more stuff of the right stuff that I know, then the better I am. And we very subtly move from trusting in the faithfulness of Jesus into thinking that our faithfulness in studying and learning and accepting truth, some of which are quite offensive, is what makes us right. And Paul says there is no boasting. It is by grace through faith. Now you may not be at either of those poles, but my suspicion is that you either swing back and forth or you lean one way or the other. Paul is speaking to all of us. He wants to draw our attention to God, to his glory, to his grace, to his love, so that we all approach God in the same way. I want you to do something. I want you to close your eyes. I won't ask for any hands to go up. 
Now I want to imagine want you to imagine that you are approaching God. Maybe it would be approaching God to talk to him in prayer. Maybe you're approaching God to ask him to reveal something in his word. You're going to open his Bible. You're approaching God, and we're all preparing to approach God at this table. I want you to see what the expression on your imagined face of God looks like. And if you see anything on his face that is other than joy, welcoming, compassion, and delight, it's probably an indication that you are trusting in something other than God's grace to justify you in Christ Jesus. And use Paul's words to remind yourself, God loves you with the same love that he loves his son, which is why he gave his son to you, which is why he gave everything that belonged to the son to you because he delights in you in the same way as he does his son, Jesus. When we understand that, we are understanding and living in light of the justification that is ours in Christ Jesus. Father, grant us the ability to see your face radiant, compassionate, loving. Give us the grace in our hearts to receive the love that you've extended, that you might be glorified and we might be free. We pray in Jesus. Amen. Amen.